So we have made a little bit of a turn in our longing series. We were talking about the stories of the Bible and how they are longing forward. And now we're going into several talks on uh, what I introduced last week, which is um, natural theology. I'll give you the definition once, once more from Alistair McGrath. Uh, he calls natural theology the branch of theology which investigates what human reason, unaided by revelation, can tell us concerning God. So it's the idea that we can begin with ourselves and see what there is in us, in, in our minds, in our experiences, that, that kind of stretches us up towards a higher being, at least. Um, and we have in, in Romans kind of a, a hint about all of that, where Paul to the Romans says, even apart from the revelation of Scripture, those who don't know, um, they already know some things about God. They know about his, his Godhead. They know about his um, divine attributes. And so you sort of think, well, where does that come from and what does that mean? So in, in the area of natural theology, we're, we're looking for, now we'll call them signposts. And in fact, because we are in a fallen world, they're broken signposts. We, we recognize that, that the signposts are not perfect. They are pointing to something. We're claiming that they're pointing forward. They're pointing to God. But the signposts themselves are broken. Sometimes we can see them well and sometimes not so well. And so the topics that we're going to consider are seven. I mentioned last week that we would deal with five and I've changed my mind. Uh, we'll, we'll go with seven. And the seven signposts, broken though they are, are justice, beauty, today we'll talk about that, freedom, truth, power, spirituality, and relationships. And one commentator says, these seven broadly name areas of life which confront more or less all human beings and all human societies. And each of them presents us with a puzzling question. We know they're important, but we can never quite grasp them the way we feel we should. That's in uh, the book History and Eschatology. Broken signposts, longings uh, that are pointing forward. So as we press on and talk about the uh, particular areas that are the broken signposts of natural theology, um, we come to the beautiful verse in Genesis that is, is going to kind of catch our attention today. So in the book of Genesis, uh, we're, we're going to start talking about beauty as, as we find it there. Uh, I, I remember several years ago, we, we came across um, old pictures from my childhood, and particularly old pictures that were taken by my mom and dad when we were traveling around, usually the south of Ireland. And I, I remembered by noticing that this showed up, I remembered this quirk of my dad's, that every time he wanted to take a picture of a beautiful thing, he would have my sister and me stand in front of the beautiful thing. Maybe it was a mountain or a valley or a stream or something like that. And the job one of us had to take on was the pointing job. 
So every photograph that my dad took while we were on holidays had either Roberta or me standing like this, pointing towards the beautiful thing. And so my dad would take the picture that would take the two of us into account and also the vista that we are supposed to be noticing. So I, I was reminded about that, that this week as I, as I thought about the, the axiom that I'm going to build on today, which is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I don't know who came up with that, and I don't, I don't know how defendable it is, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I want you to learn uh, maybe a new word or, or start using a word again that you probably haven't used very much in your life. It's the, world, the word behold. So, so we don't often say to one another, hey, behold. Probably the vernacular would be look, or hey, um, that sort of thing. And when we go to Genesis and we begin to um, dig around for the, the notions of beauty, there's a lovely verse at the end of Genesis 1. It's verse 31, and it simply says this, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Isn't that a delightful verse? So it goes through day by day, the features of creation, and we often get the editorial comment that God saw what he had made, but it, in this end verse that kind of encapsulates all that has happened in the days of creation, uh, we have God beholding, right? God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. I went back into the passage to make sure that the word behold was in there, and it was. It's just a little sort of a punctuation in the middle of the, of the syntax of the verse. And it, it, it just struck me as, as the power of the verse, and it brings me to the topic of beauty. Essentially, beauty is something to behold. And that little axiom, I think, rings true, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So who was the beholder in Genesis? The first beholder is God himself. And you have this sort of image of God at the end of a work week, and he, he maybe sits down and he, and he just gazes over all that he has created, and he pauses and then confirms what he always knew, that it was good, not only good, but it was actually very good. So I was in the eye of the beholder. The, the beauty was in the eye of the beholder. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let me make a few observations about beauty. Um, beauty, first of all, is to be seen. Secondly, beauty is to be said, and then beauty is to be shared. The verse is a lovely verse. We know who God is. When it uses the verb saw, it, it's, it's a verb that is translated by the words inspect, survey, contemplate. And, and that is really the notion that God, having created all that he had, simply saw what he had done. He, he looked over what he had done. And beauty in the eye of the beholder begins with God, the beholder, surveying what he has created. 
noticing what he has made. Beauty is, first of all, as a human impulse, as a human drive, as a human longing, it's something that we should have, have the discipline, so to speak, of, of pausing and noticing. I thought about that this morning. I was sitting on my porch, and I thought, do I often take the time to see? Could I say Ian saw such and such, and it was very good? Well, sometimes I don't take the time to notice anything. Uh, They say you should stop to smell the roses and all that sort of thing, and yeah, I guess that's true. But as I sat there this morning, I thought, I'm just going to look and see what is around me. Annabeth loves gardening, so I saw all the flowers in all of their splendor. I mean, they are gorgeous. It's been a fantastic summer for growing flowers. Uh, I saw birds, and I saw some new birds. There's some birds that are more migratory, I think, and maybe they're on their way south again. I don't know why you would go south given their weather. That's what I'm talking about here, just their weather. But there were these ones, the waxwings, that, that I think are on their way to or fro, and I looked at them and I, I just saw um, the grandeur, the, the beauty of these birds. I looked up and there was a hawk that was circling above. A neighbor walked past and he was watching the hawk as well. And we both commented on the hawk and he said, I think it's hunting. And I said, yeah, I, I bet it is. He said, did you notice the horses? Because in the fields across from our house are are the horses from um, their experimental horses of some kind from University of Guelph. So I always expect them to have two heads or something. But so far they look like normal horses. But I, I looked at the horses and and I, I remarked to myself. Hopefully nobody was watching. And I said they're such gorgeous animals. They're beautiful. The hawks are beautiful. The, the little songbirds are beautiful. The flowers are beautiful. Um, we have some tomato plants and we've trained the tomato plants to, I have to climb up a tree. And so here's this tomato plant that's like seven feet tall. And the tomatoes day by day in their little clusters, their little cherry tomatoes, they're becoming more ripe day by day, more red day by day. And I looked at the cluster of tomatoes and I thought it, it's, it looks, it's beautiful, isn't it? Beholding is a human ability. And I thought to myself, I I should slow myself down and be careful to see in the same way that God could see what he had made. What do I see? And what is the beholding all about? First of all, why are those things what I would call beautiful? How do I know they're beautiful? Against what measure do I pitch them for for beauty? Um, Why do I think some things are beautiful and other people don't think them beautiful? Why do other people think some things beautiful and I don't notice them as being beautiful? Well, to begin with, why don't we all slow down and see what we see and look for the beauty. Because the second thing I'm observing here is that not only is beauty in the eye of the beholder and to be seen, but it's to be said. God looked at what he had created and he said, it's good. 
we, we get that whole narrative through the creation chapter of Genesis chapter 1. How often do I make a comment to someone else and say, there's something beautiful. So that's my dad with me or Roberta with our outstretched arm with the pointer finger. It's to say, look at that. Behold the beauty of, of the bird, of the flower, of the tomato plant, of the hawk, of the horses. Behold. Have a look. And thirdly, beauty is something to be shared. Uh, have you ever seen something and you wish that someone was with you so that you could point the object or the bird or the animal or the event? You, you wish you could point it out to somebody. You, you, you have this need to share it with someone else. My, my dad was feeling the need to share by photography what was beautiful on the horizon or nearer than the horizon in the, the mountains nearby or the valley or, or the stream. And he, he made a record of that by photographs that all these decades later I could look at and remember that that was the silent valley we were looking at, that that was the, the gap of Dunlow that he was having us point at. Um, that th that was a little thatched cottage and the smoke from a peat fire that he was having us look at. And as I remember these things, I, I think, well, what, what is this human thing that we do by observing? And where does the notion of beauty come from? They say that there are two kinds of beauty. There's beauty, which is beauty at its source, and then there is beauty that is reflected. And to me, th those two aspects of beauty um, come as a, a, an apologetic for the existence and more than the existence of God. So as I see and as I say, look at the beauty of that, and I share it with someone else, I need to be sharing that I believe that the whole notion of beauty comes from God. God is a God of incredible beauty. The things that he has made are marked by beauty. The animal kingdom, to, to, to even stay there, to, to pitch our tent there for a little while, the animal kingdom is full of absolute beauty. Every now and then you come across something and it's the picture of or the photograph of something very, very, very tiny that the human eye may not even notice, but by um, lenses and photography and by skill, um, these little, little creatures are blown up for us to see. And what are they? They are beautiful. They're full of color. They're full of, of motion and it, it casts back to the God who created them, who took delight in all that he made. And beauty is how he described it. And beauty was in the eye of the beholder. The beholder was God himself. I want to go a little bit farther and just reflect on beauty as a phenomenon. And for that, I take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 where the, the wisdom literature points out what it sees. And in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. I think that's what we're saying here today, that when we see and um, our, our eyes or however else we sense what is seen or experienced, 
when we see that and and we we involve ourselves in reflecting on it and in conversation about it it brings us back to the source of beauty and um, the definer of beauty and it it takes us on a journey an inner journey that says what is this creation if it was not made by a being who is at the very least beautiful vibrant colorful whatever brought this about seems to be something of beauty it is not just mechanical it's not just functional it's not just the end result i think of of um accidents or or even the end result of of the dominance of one aspect of the animal kingdom for example over another Uh, eternity in my heart is god saying to me you know what you know that that's beautiful and you know that it testifies to a beautiful creator so natural revelation comes to play and it, it stretches me up and says there are things that i know whether or not i've ever opened a bible to know that they're true i didn't need to open a bible to believe that somebody something some entity some being brought these things into existence or managed their existence managed their development in such a way that they are complex and beautiful and it tells me that that person that being that entity must be a being of beauty I believe that God is a God of beauty and he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, says the writer to Ecclesiastes. I was thinking again as I sat musing this morning. I had a long time to muse on the porch this morning. I was thinking about the beauty of so many things, but the beauty of human anatomy came to mind. And I'll be careful what I say here. Um, the human body is a, is a beautiful piece of creation. Uh, I've been noticing that as masks have become important and prevalent, I've been noticing eyes. And have you seen that there are some eyes that smile? So you wonder if a person is smiling behind their mask. Sometimes you can't tell. But sometimes their eyes are already smiling and the mask covering the mouth and most of the face taking our attention to the eyes reminds us that here's something that God has done concerning human anatomy that is beautiful you might say he has beautiful eyes more likely you will say she has beautiful eyes what color are those eyes aren't they so pretty they're so hazel they're so brown they're so blue Um, the eyes are coming into vogue again. Uh, I thought about um, my son Daniel uh, when he was in high school. I was driving Daniel around Brampton. I don't know where we were going, but there was a pretty girl walked past, and Dan's eyes traveled to follow the girl. Now, God has made everything beautiful in its time, which means in its place. So I want you to be careful with this. I said to Dan, what are you looking at? Well, I thought he might feel he was caught red-handed and he would get flustered. He simply said, 
I'm looking at God's good workmanship. And I thought, all right, that's a good answer for a pastor's kid. Um, and he could maybe just go, got away with that. Um, I watch hands. M- many of you know that I be- began my college training as an organ major. And um, I watch people's hands. When, when we have a new grandchild born, everybody looks at different things. I, I look at their hands because long fingers promise to me piano players or organ players. To someone else, they mean football players <laughs> or, or basketball players. But aren't the hands just an amazing part of creation? I mean, the ability of a hand, the intricacy of a hand, the intricacy of the musculature of the hands, of, of the dexterity of the hands is just a marvelous thing. And, and don't get me started on music. Because again, what, does, what is it that makes music beautiful? I began playing the pipe organ, and to this day, there's probably nothing that I consider more beautiful than hearing the, the thunder of an, an organ um, as it rumbles through the floor or up into your body. As, what is that? Is it, is it just the mechanics of air through pipes? No, it's, it's, there's something beautiful that is implicit um, to music. And, and there's a, a whole realm where we could say, what kind of music do we listen to? Why do we find it beautiful? And wh- what kind of music do you find beautiful? Um, do you find music beautiful that others think is not beautiful? In fact, they might even find it offensive. Um, do you find music um grating that other people might say that's not grating at all that's that's gorgeous what what kind of music is it that that speaks out to you well let, let me come back again to the 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 human body the the anatomy and I'll take you away from my my bad report about Dan watching girls walking by but um our our granddaughter Michaela is a swimmer and th- there's hardly anything as lovely as watching a good swimmer. And Annabeth and I, when we take our turn to take Michaela to her swim lessons and uh, we see her with her friends, Annabeth will, will often comment about how beautiful it is to watch Michaela swim. And it really is. I mean, and what is that? It, it's, it's not just that the body has been trained to move in such a way to win a race. There's something graceful. There's something beautiful about the human body and what God has enabled it to do, created it uh, to do. Earlier than that, my boys were all rugby players, and there's something beautiful about a a person sprinting with a ball under his arm as the wing, and as he runs past the opposition, and he runs towards um, the opportunity for a try. What is that? Um, one of our boys was a runner. We loved to watch him run because he ran without any effort. It was it was just well, what's the word? It was it was beautiful. God made everything beautiful in His time, and He put eternity in our hearts. Well, what has happened to beauty is maybe the next thing that we should talk about. And what has happened to beauty is that it was, first of all, made, but then it was spoiled. 
And there's the, the, the stuff of the broken signpost. Because what God has made beautiful, Satan is determined to spoil. So if you do go back to the human body, what have we done uh, when we have sexualized the human body? We, we look past the, the beauty of the form and we look to something that is not what it was created for primarily. Um, and, and we allow it to be a marred beauty. We, we allow it to be a spoiled beauty. And, and God has made everything beautiful in his place. The creation around us, um, as, as we take concern about the environment and wonder what we're doing to the environment, we notice that, that we have spoiled the environment by, by what we've made. So we actually can be co-creators with God. We can, we can observe with God and we can make things with God. Um, I've, I've seen some incredible diamonds over the last number of years and you think about the fact that that diamond did not, first of all, appear uh, on on a lovely slender hand of a bride um, with clusters around it. But somebody took what God did make and fashioned it and made all of the facets what they present when they reflect the light and refract the light all, all around them. So s- some of the things that God has made, we we actually join in and carry on the work. Some of the things that God has made, we, we take and we spoil them. And nothing brings greater delight to Satan than to see a spoiled, beautiful thing. Um, the third thing, not only are they made and, and spoiled, sadly, but the great news is that they're restored. Uh, imagine when all is said and done, and we find ourselves in the millennium, uh, we find ourselves in the new heavens and the the new earth, uh, do you realize that there will be nothing that is not beautiful? There will be nothing that, that moves ahead of time into eternity that doesn't bear the mark of the beautiful creator that began everything and that has watched as it much has been spoiled, marred, by the enemy of of creation. Satan does not love the beauty at all. He loves ugliness. He loves breaking things. He loves spoiling things. He loves taking things for one purpose and giving them to a different purpose, a a far inferior purpose. Um, He enjoys saying, ah, that's nothing. He enjoys turning things that are beautiful and testimonies to the existence of God. He enjoys turning them into just mechanisms, just machines or um, just processes. And the beauty that is in the eye of the beholder finds another beholder who wants to behold not, not beauty but ugliness, wants, wants to find not, not something perfect but something very imperfect. Um, something that is going from order to disorder. Maybe he loves the second law of thermodynamics, that things that start out beautiful have a way of going south. So things rust. I don't know, is rust part of the fall? Is rust part of the nature of certain metals and so on? I don't know. Maybe there's something beautiful about rust that I haven't really noticed. Uh, 
But God will restore the beauty that originally allowed him to behold his creation and say, it's good, it's very good. There will be nothing that is not beautiful in the future. Uh, and, and every experience that we have today of noticing what is beautiful will only be enhanced and magnified and, and obvious for all of the future. And, and for how many years, how many centuries, how many millennia will, be sim- will we be simply consumed with the beauty of all of this? We've not talked at all about astronomy and the fact that there are these bodies around us um, I remember the first time I saw the southern sky. I was in in Kenya, and um, I had never seen the southern sky before, never seen the southern cross. And the sky was totally different from what I was used to. But there were no lights, there were no towns, there were no cities. There was just the glory of the sky. And I remember looking and thinking, that's beautiful. Uh, not just because these planets and stars exist, but they exist in a beautiful form. They exist in an apparently beautiful form to me, the observer, the one who is beholding. So if what we can see now, albeit shadowed, albeit um, part of a broken signpost, if, if it enthralls us, um, it's only because to whatever degree it still harkens back to the beautiful creator It says, the God who made all of this made it work, but much more, he made it beautiful, and he will restore it. So, centuries, millennia into the future, we will still be engrossed with the glory of what God has done. Um, Augustine, I think it was, um, was reflecting on Jesus, and he thought about beauty and he said Jesus is the beauty of everything beautiful it's kind of a doubling of words he's the beauty of everything that's beautiful 